Now, friends, today we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Judges. Now, when you think of the book of Judges, at least uh, in a context, you know, one of the things that you ought to be able to put together is this, okay? In the book of Genesis, you know, by the time we get to the end, we have this family, 75 people. They go down into Egypt, and they are there for 430 years. During those 430 years, that family populates and becomes a nation. And, uh, of course, it, uh, uh, the reason they leave is because uh, the, the nation of Egypt has made them slaves. But God raises up Moses to deliver them and lead them out. Two and a half million people coming out of Egypt. Now, he is... Uh, <coughs> I might do that a couple of times today. Front row, bad choice. <laughs> Try and stand back a little bit. Okay, so God has told them he's going to take them to a promised land, a promised land. And uh, we, we see the journeys in Exodus, in Numbers, Leviticus, learn a lot about the law. Numbers, we see some discipline on the people who come to the very edge of the land. They send in 12 spies. God says, go ahead and search it out and see if it isn't everything that I told you it would be. Those 12 spies, they go in the land. And you know what they find? It is far greater than they could have ever imagined. As a matter of fact, the scripture records that it took two men on a stick to carry a bunch of grapes. It was a good land and a fruitful land, just as God had promised them. But those 12 spies, they gave a bad report. Actually, it was 10 of them. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in now and take this land. But 10 of those spies said, no, the people are too great for us. We're like, we're like little grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we could do it. They failed to believe God. And so God said, this whole generation that believed those spies and would not go to the promised land, you're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years until this generation is dead. Then a new generation is going to go. Now, friends, that's, that brings us to the book of Joshua. Joshua, one of those two good spies who said, we can trust God on this. It's a theme here, isn't there? Trusting faith, my friends, in God. Now, the book of Joshua, the key word here is victory. I mean, they went in and just smashed heads, friends. I mean, these people who were offering sacrifices to idols, sacrificing their children, uh, just some bad stuff. And God used this partially on judgment on these people, but also to provide a place for God's nation, Israel. So here they are now. They're in the land and there's still pockets of people who haven't been driven out. And we come to the book of Judges. The book of Judges at the beginning tells us a new generation, you know, arose that did not know the Lord. And these people do evil in the sight of God. And so what does God do? He says, forget all of you. No. God loves this nation. He has made some serious uh, unconditional covenants with this nation. 
to make them a people and through this people. And so what does he do? He disciplines them. What it means is he would raise up some of these people to come in and to, to enslave his people and make their life hard until they turn from their sin and turn to God. Well, friends, that brings us to chapter 7. And today, we're going to meet a guy named Gideon. Y'all know that story about Gideon? I don't know if you went to Sunday school, a little boy or girl. You know, you may remember all of those judges, how unusual they are. And this is a most unusual story. Now, friends, I want to start by defining what faith is. Faith is believing that something is true and then committing your life to live it out. Think about that. That's a generic uh, definition. You might believe that the best team in the NFL is the Chicago Bears. And because you do, you watch it, you wear the gear, you wear, you know, you talk about it, and it just becomes central in your life. You look who the new draft picks are, how they're doing in summer camp, you know. I believe, therefore I act. Now let's make this um, a little more practical for us here this morning. because We know the bears aren't the best. Come on, go Lions. <laughs> go Lions. <laughs> Faith in God then is believing what God says is true and committing our lives to live it out. Think about that. What is your attitude toward the word of God here this morning? Are these the words of God that we're going to read in Judges chapter 7? Are there lessons for us to grasp hold of and then live out in our life? I would suggest to you, it is and there are. Now there are two parts to this definition. <coughs> the first part is believing what God says. So here's the thing. If you don't know what God says, you can't trust him, right? And how can you trust what you don't know? Yeah. And so it is a good idea to hide God's word in your heart, to be students of the word of God. That's how our faith grows, reading the word of God taking God at his word and living it out. The second part is committing your life to living it out. In other words, you cannot say you have faith if you go on living the same, having heard God's word. I mean, James talks a lot about that, faith and works. Faith always demonstrates itself by activity, by actions, by the way that we live. So today we're going to study that familiar and exciting story of Gideon's unusual victory over the Midianites. And this account is really a story of faith in action. I mean, this is really about a man who hears what God has to say, has the opportunity to say, well, how would I do that? Or what would other people do? And go that way, but he listens to God. He acts on it. And because of that, my friends, there is a great victory. What we're going to discover in this story, there's three principles. 
Three very important principles to understand. These truths are, are the basis on which we operate. We should anticipate these truths. And the first principle is this. God tests our faith. Now, I've heard people use that, that term. They talk about that principle, but they don't have a lot of understanding as to what that really means. The fact is, God tests everything. He tests our obedience. He tests our compassion. He tests our love. God may place you in a position this very week where there that person is sitting across from you, a circumstance that suddenly somehow has become so obvious to you. And the only question that remains is what will you do? How will you act in kindness, in love and compassion? Or will you simply go about your way? You see, to test something means to evaluate how it's functioning or to what level. There are a lot of tools in my tool belt, so to speak, or in my garage that I use to measure things, to test. A multimeter is used for electricity. So your refrigerators and cooling like it should be. You know? Uh, go on YouTube first, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you got to measure, is everything working properly? Is this relay rattling or is everything good going on here? You know, I've been sick. You can hear it in my voice. You know, one of the ways that we can measure illness, a thermometer. Yeah. Isn't the body a wonderful thing? You know, if there's something going on in our body that isn't right, you know what our body's plan is? Cook that thing. Get us hot. I mean, really hot till that thing is dead. It's called a fever. Tools to measure. Testing our faith, which is simply a matter of God already knows what's going on in our life. Most of the purpose of these tests is so you can see what's going on in yours. See, testing our faith. Now, why does God test our faith? Well, at least two reasons. The first is <clears throat> to show us whether our faith is real or counterfeit. We can talk about faith. Yak, 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 yak. But the proof is in the living, my friends. The proof is in the living. Hmm. Spurgeon was right when he said the promises of God shine brightest in the furnaces of affliction. When things are difficult and life seems to be tumbling in on you, this is a great opportunity to reveal what you're trusting in. You're smart. I can figure this out. Does God come into the equation? God must be doing something at this time. It must be, it would be wise for me to try to figure that out. Is there an unconfessed sin that God is trying to bring to my attention? What might it be? The significance of tests. Yeah. Well, my friends, when we talk about faith, we're talking about Gideon. Gideon shows up in Hebrews chapter 11, which is a list of the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. So let's jump in and look at his story here. 
God tested Gideon's faith through a series of sifting out available personnel. You see, once again, the Midianites now are the, are the people who have come against the people of God. And now the people of God have cried out to God. And now God raises up this man. Look at here in chapter 7, verse 1. <coughs> then Jerubbabel, <laughs> Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the king of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Your army's too big. And that doesn't sit right, does it? Well, what do you mean it's too big? We're going to fumble all over? No, that's not the issue. Notice the people, verse 2 with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so the Lord's solution is, you need less people so that you can see my power. I'm going to take away your resources so that you can see my power. And as a result, glorify me. I want you to think about that. If that might be going on in your life, is God removing resources from your life so that you can see him in action? All those people, oh, think of the boasting. Look at what we have done. God says, no, this is for my glory, not yours. So how does he does it? All right, we see the reason for it. What are the means? Verse three, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry, <coughs> hurry away from Mount Gilead. Anybody a little bit afraid of this uh, going into war thing? It's amazing that anybody stayed. But look at here, the impact. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now let's be honest here. If you were in charge of this, you would want those 22,000 people. And if you were that person, it would be because you don't think that God is enough. We've got to challenge some thoughts here, friends, about how we pursue, what our perspective on, on life is. Is God enough? Or do we need more resources? Look at us here. Go ahead, everybody look around the room. A few years back, we were over 300 people. Now, here's a problem. There can be a lie that sneaks in here and says, but we're weak, and we don't have the people that we used to have, and maybe God has forsaken us. 
Or perhaps God has placed us in this situation so that we can see he's enough. That the response we ought to have is to put our trust in him. What is it does he, does he want us to do? And when should we get going on it? Think about it. And so here we have this first personnel shift, sifting, sifting through the army. And he just sent 22,000 people home. Just like that, two-thirds of the army is gone. And then we come to the second personnel sifting. <coughs> and the reason is the same, verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many, but the means are different. So this is the idea. It says, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. You remember this one? So he brought them down to the water. <coughs> and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise. Everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped by putting their hand to their mouth was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Now, if you think of the 10,000, God's about to get rid of the uh, 300, <laughs> you're wrong. Now, some have played with this whole thing, this, this, how they were drinking at the water, you know, thinking that the people who were lifting up, those are the watchful ones, so we're going to hold on to those. That is the exact opposite of what God is doing here. God was simply dividing. People tend to do it one of two ways. We're going to take the smaller of the group. And so starting out it. There are over 30,000 people. They're now down to 300. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. <coughs> now, we shouldn't think that all of these 10,000 people went down to the water at once. Think about 10,000 people stretched out along a river. You know, this would have happened likely in groups over time, just simply watching. But now the number is down to 300. Not 10,000, not 22,000 or 30,000. 300 people. In verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets, <laughs> which sounds unusual, doesn't it? Come in handy later though. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men in all the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, when I read this yet again, <coughs> I was reminded of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Jonathan, the, the son of Saul, the first king of Israel, he was now preparing himself to go to war. 
And he said these things. This day, I will begin to put the... I'm sorry. (laughs) I've skipped down the page here. Jonathan, the son of Saul, while he was going to battle, (coughs) said to the young man who carried his armor, come and let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. Note carefully, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It's not about the numbers, my friend. It's about the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord to save by many or by few. Well, my friends, here we have the final number. And we don't see much protesting going on by Gideon, do we? You know, one might expect, as we've seen by others, well, Lord, is that really a good idea? I mean, sending all those people away, we could really use those. I mean, the Midianites, after all. No complaining. Accepting God's plan is an act of faith. But I want you to notice this, my friends, that after testing Gideon's faith and eliminating his army, God encourages his faith. God encourages faith. That's our second principle. Look at here in verse 9. How does he do it? Well, One of the first is with his word. How does God encourage our faith? Through his word. What does he say? Verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, (coughs) (coughs) go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Now, those of you that enjoy grammar as I do will notice that the statement that God just made here, the Lord had made to Gideon, is in the past tense. I have already given them to you. It's already a done deal. You just need to go down there and get it. They are already in your hands. The second way that God encouraged his faith is giving him an opportunity to hear the enemy. And this is a most unusual event. It is important to know that one of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel as they were going into this promised land, especially in the book of, of Joshua, he made, God made a promise. And in Deuteronomy, just as they were on the verge of going in, In Deuteronomy 2.22, the Lord said, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish of you. One of the tactics that God used to soften up the enemy was to give them fear. Fear is a horrific thing was the last time you were afraid? I mean, generally afraid. Out at night, one light in the parking lot, walking toward your car. Fear is a terrifying thing. 
It is. It can paralyze you. But notice here, friends, verse 10. He told them to go down against the camp. I've given it in your hand. But look at verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then he, uh, Gideon, went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels without, were without number. They had 300 men. Hmm, wow. And as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold... He just happened to overhear a conversation. I guarantee you, friends, God, there is no such thing as a coincidence in this world. God sent him down there to hear what was on the minds and the hearts of the enemy. So behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold... A cake of barley bread. (coughs) A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. It sounds exactly the way people dream, isn't it? There was a great crowd of people, but there was only two or three. <laughs> That's how dreams work. So he's talking about this, this, this great big barley roll here, you know? Stuff sitting out on the fields. <coughs> and it rolled into the camp and rolled into the tent. And now, of course, comes the danger interpreting your dreams. Friends, your dreams at night are nonsense defragging the hard drive of the mind. But notice how this guy interpreted it in light of his, his situation. And his comrade answered, well, well, this is none other than the sword of Gideon and of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the company. Their fear interpreted the situation. And there is Gideon, only got 300 guys. And he gets the pulse of the enemy. They're terrified. See, there's a big cake of barley rolling down the hill into the camp. What does that mean? Surely it means we're going to lose. And Gideon is encouraged. And as soon as Gideon, verse 15 heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation. What did he do? What do you expect him to do? He worshiped. There it is, right there, black and white. And then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And Here is God increasing this man's faith. Remember when we met Gideon, he was hiding in the wine press hiding and terrified. There's no fear in this man right now. 
He has heard God's word. He has heard the doom of the enemy, and he's on his way. Now, our third principle we find in here in verse 16. God honors our faith. When we put our faith in him, God will honor it. And how did he do that? Verse 16, God gave Gideon wisdom to organize the army. So he divided the 300 men, because there were so many of them, into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. <coughs> and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Certainly the name of a man who brought fear to their hearts. And so God gave Gideon wisdom to prepare this army. And God gave Gideon courage to lead the army. Verse 19. So Gideon... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch where they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands and then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their jars and they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. They've got them surrounded. And all the army ran and they cried and they fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. Notice this. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all of the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. So God has caused in their terror the sword of the enemy to be against itself. God at work, my friends. God does not command, go back to the office and do some light reading and come back and find out how it goes. When God commands, he enables. And God has already gone before to prepare success for those who will trust him. To go and do what he has called us to do. Here is Gideon. He's not asking any questions. God says it. He does it. That is faith. God says it. He does it. God didn't tell them I'm going to have their swords turn against one another. God didn't say that I'm going to have terror in their hearts. <coughs> Although he had a, gave them an opportunity to see it. And then here in verse 23... God gave him more troops. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all of Manasseh. And they pursued after Midian. 
And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country in Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites, capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And God gave them the victory. It was God's victory from the beginning, my friends. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb and the, uh, Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed in the wine press of Zeb. What was he doing in the wine press? He was terrified, just like Gideon was before he put his faith in God. Story begins in a wine press and ends one. But it's not the same guy, my friends. So they pursued Midian. They brought the head of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Success, my friends. This is the definition of success as God has laid it out for us. Hear his words. And respond in faith by acting on them. And just nod your head. That is a great temptation here to say, I see it, Pastor Dave. I do. I get it. That's not faith, friends. Faith is what you do next. When you ask the question, what is God calling me to do right now? What has God been poking my heart about lately? What is it that I've been putting off? What is it today that I need to act on? Faith is believing God and putting it to work. Sermon in a sentence. Let's wrap it up. Success is not for the talented, skilled, and experienced, but for those who trust God. (coughs) 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 And in this story, the fact that we're not enough is exactly the point. 30-some thousand troops, that might do it. Let's get rid of some. Because the victory is God's. It is for his glory, not our own. The fact that we're not enough is exactly the point why we must trust God. Trust him. Trust him, I call you. And then I call you to do a faith audit. You ready for it? I hope that you will respond to this. When is the last time you changed your mind and your actions? based on what God has said. When is the last time that you've changed your mind and your actions based on what God has said? And remember this, my friends. That God has chosen to use people like me and like you for his glory, not ours. 
The fact that we're not enough is there to highlight that he is.